this morning's message is uh, going to be more, uh, more a set of reflections. I'm just going to call them a set of reflections on this story of the birth of Isaac. Um, I mean, it's Memorial Day weekend. I figure everybody's a little relaxed. You don't have to work tomorrow, do you? So we'll just, well, I, I don't know if these things are connected, but there are four different movements maybe in this story. Now, Abraham and uh, Sarah uh, were given a promise by God that they would have a child, that they would have children of their own, and that the nations, na- many nations would come from them. This promise is made in the face of against all odds. It can't happen. It shouldn't happen. Abraham and Sarah are old and they are childless. And uh, they laugh about it. Uh, them having a child, that's a good one, God. It's a knee slapper. But as Nancy said a couple of weeks ago at the end of her sermon, God always has the last laugh. And Abraham and Sarah have a baby. Um, A couple of things about that birth. Number one, it was a humorous event. Uh, They named the child Isaac. In Hebrew, Isaac means to laugh. Because it's a laughable event. And Sarah even goes farther with it, saying that everyone who hears about this birth is going to laugh with her. I know, I know we do this when we're standing in the grocery line and we're looking at the National Enquirer and we're looking at Globe magazine. Isn't this the type of things we see? 100-year-old man, 90-year-old woman have a baby. And what do we do? <laughs> That's good. Look at that one. It's laughable. It's laughable. Second thing about this event, it was a divine event. It was a God thing. It was a God thing. The Lord, it says, was gracious to Sarah. And in the word gracious that the New International Version that we read from, that that Hebrew word means to attend to, to care for, to come to someone's aid. Joseph used that word when he spoke to his brothers and said that the Lord would come to their aid to give, to take them to the land that he promised to Abraham. Jeremiah uses that word when he asked God to pray Uh, when he prays to God for God to care for him. It's used again in Jeremiah of the Babylon, the the exiles in Babylon, the way God is going to restore them. He will be gracious to them. He will care for them and restore them. In Psalms, that word is used to describe God's goodness and his attentiveness to us when we're in need. And the reason God does this is because he said he would. That is emphasized in the birth of Isaac. It says again and again that this is the result of the word of the Lord. Uh, Twice, the promise of the Lord is emphasized. Um, Literally in Hebrew, it says, The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Exactly as he had spoken, he would. Centuries later, the writer of Hebrews would say this, that by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, And Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because Abraham considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Paul writes in Romans that Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Abraham considered God to be faithful, and he was 
fully persuaded the power of God was in this birth. God is the God who speaks, and it happens. God calls into existence by his word things that are not there. God gives his word, and it accomplishes what it sets out to do, even for senior citizens, on Medicare, in a maternity ward. You know, the journey of faith requires believing in the word of the Lord. The journey of faith takes believing his promises that he will always be with us, that he loves us, and that he forgives us, and that all things, all things do work together for good for those who love him. So the first reflection, the power of the promises of God and the power of the word of God. The second reflection, after all the promises that God had brought to Abraham, coming again and again to tell him they will have a child, a son. After all the drama and the conflict and the tension that was a part of working out this birth, wouldn't we expect the birth of Isaac to get a lot of print in the Bible? A couple chapters at least, don't you think? Uh, this is the child of the promise. Wouldn't we expect a blow-by-blow blow of Sarah's pregnancy, of uh, the labor pains of all the hoopla in the, in the region and in their lives over this birth of the child of promise. Yet the fulfillment, the, the, the story of the fulfillment of this promise gets only a few verses. We have nine chapters and 25 years building up to this birth and then a couple verses. Why? You know, perhaps... It's more about the journey than the end. Maybe it's more about the journey than the end. It's more about what God was doing in Abraham and Sarah in the waiting, in the praying, in the wondering, in the struggling, in the believing, in the trusting than anything else. Isaac was easy for God. Isaac was easy. But it was what he was doing in them, as they learned about him, as they learned to be in relationship with him, and as they walked by faith, and as God was preparing them to be a people from whom a people of faith could come forth. You know, God makes Abraham and Sarah wait. Waiting either builds or it breaks our faith. God asks Abraham and Sarah to trust. God puts them on his time, and waiting and trust is a theme in anybody's life who's trying to walk with God. You're going to find somewhere along the line, you're going to be waiting and you're going to be trusting. While the things we wait for are important, perhaps more important is what God does us, does in us through the waiting. We wait for the right relationship. We wait for the right job or a new job. We wait for um, someone in our life to change or we wait for a healing. Sometimes we're waiting for death. Sometimes we're waiting for the next phase in our lives. But God uses all of these experiences to do something in our faith, to teach us to trust him, and that he will bring about to fruition what he wants in our lives. Along the way, we doubt, we wonder, we struggle, we pray. Sometimes we try to force to think what we think should be happening. But it's the journey, 
maybe more than the destination. Tony Dungy was the football coach of the Indianapolis Colts of the National Football League and in 2007 he became the first African-American man to win the grand prize of all professional football. It was a long road though for Tony Dungy to get there. Tony Dungy experienced racism. Um, as a player he was on a championship team and then he got traded to the worst team in the league and it ended his career. It was a, uh, just a bad place for him to be. Then he worked his way up the coaching ladder with various assistant jobs. And then he finally got hired as the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then after several years there, he got fired. And he didn't know if he would ever get a coaching job again. Nobody was calling him. He wasn't getting any interviews. Until finally he was hired by Indianapolis. While he was the coach there, his parents died in a very close time together. And then... He lost a son to suicide as he was a coach. At the end of 2006, when the Colts won the conference championship to go to the Super Bowl, it wasn't the trophy that he was really thinking about. Tony Dungy writes in Quiet Strength, the first book he's written. He said, for me, it wasn't even the Super Bowl itself that was uppermost in my mind. It was the thought of the journey and the way we had persevered through it all, not giving up, staying the course. He said the focus of his life had always been living his life in the way he thought was right and walking in the way that the Lord had always guided him. And while he wanted to reach the goal of football's ultimate game, he knew the Lord didn't call him to be successful in the eyes of the world. The Lord had called him to be faithful. You know, you think about it, the actual winning of the, those of us who've been on a Super Bowl team, the actual, um, the actual winning of a championship lasts a day, really a few hours, maybe the next day or two. There's a parade, you get a hat, you get a t-shirt, and then you know what? It's over, isn't it? And you start on next year, which takes about 362 days. But it's the getting there that Tony Dungy appreciated and valued. I'm not suggesting that the birth of Isaac is like winning a Super Bowl. I'm shallow, but I'm not that shallow. None of us, though, are called to something as great as Abraham and Sarah and having this child, right? But it's what God does in us as he moves in us that I want to draw attention to. In the trusting, in the waiting, in the hoping, in the not knowing. Some of you are students and you've gone through long times of studying and exams and preparation for final exams or degrees and then once you pass the tests and you go through the course of study and you meet the requirements there's that wonderful feeling of exhilaration and of relief and you're thrilled that you've made it through there were times you wondered if you would make it there was anxiety there was weariness there was much to endure well as important as the final grade or that diploma is isn't it the journey of studying of the late nights of the hard work that are filled with importance. You were molded. You were shaped by all of those things. You had to go through all that before you got that final grade or the diploma. Where's our journey of faith right now? What is God doing in you as you're going there? What is he tearing down in you? What is he building up in you? What is he changing? What is he bringing to life? 
What is he growing you to be? Sometimes I tell parents in their struggles with uh, children or, or even teenagers or even older children, I say maybe the, the point of the struggle isn't what God is doing in your child. Maybe the point is what he's doing in you. It's what God was doing in Abraham and Sarah, I think, that was significant. It's the journey. It's not always where we end up. It's that journey. It's not the getting there. It's what he does in us along the way. Third reflection. While we might think this is the end of the story and everybody lives happily ever after, it's not. There's this other thing that happens. Remember, Abraham has another son, Ishmael, who was born to him through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar the Egyptian. Um, at a party that Abraham throws to celebrate Isaac, Sarah sees Ishmael mocking, and she goes to Abraham and she says, Get rid of of them. She doesn't even use their names. Read it. She says, get rid of that slave woman and her son. This is actually the second time that Sarah has tried to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah is a woman of faith and God works through her to bring about the birth of Isaac and begin this plan of salvation. But she is also cold and she is also full of hate and she is also jealous. You know, one of the amazing things about the Bible, I think, and one of the things that convicts me of its truth is that nothing is cleaned up. God gives it to us all with the faults of his people in his story of salvation. The problems are there. There is violence. There is brutality. There is lying. There is conniving. There are problems. But in the midst of it all, God is there achieving his purposes through the mess. There are people full of disbelief, problems. God uses them and works out his plan of salvation anyway. You know, if you're looking for a faith that is pure and that is clean, and that is detached from real life, Jesus is not for you. Now Sarah's demand to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael stresses Abraham out. God says, don't be stressed. I'll take care of it. And he does. And after a Hagar and, and the boy are sent out into the desert with a little water and food, and Hagar abandons her son because the water has run out. She can't bear to see him die. God comes to Hagar saying, I've heard the crying of your little boy, and I'm going to take care of him. And he does. And the boy and his mom grow up, and they make a life for themselves. God cared about Hagar, and he cared about Ishmael too. Ishmael wasn't the child of the promise, but that didn't mean that God didn't care about him. What we see, I think, in this story of the birth of Isaac is that God can work through the mess and in the mess. In the jealousy, in the rivalry, in the pain, God works. God's not limited by the imperfections and the chaos of this world. Uh, God is not too holy and too perfect to step into the decay and the dirt. His plans aren't thwarted by the drama or by the conflict or by the muck, he's working. And don't we see this in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? How God took something that was ugly, that was wretched, that was destructive, and he transformed it into a place of his victory. The hopelessness, the despair of the cross, transformed by the power of the resurrection. 
You've made some mistakes. We've experienced some brokenness. We haven't always been a saint. God doesn't require good people to do good work. A la Sarah. And not every situation has to be cleaned up for him to be there. Now, I always need to be reminded of this because I like my situations nice and clean and tidy. I like people to be together. I like my life to be problem-free, my family, my church, everything to be conflict, problem-free, looking just like Jesus, running smooth. And then when there is a conflict or there is a problem, uh uh-oh, well, we better get that all together so God can come back to us, right? It's not that God relishes or wants the problems or the sins or the foolishness that this world in rebellion gives and brings about. But it's not going to keep him from working his purposes in the world. So if your life or your job or your family situation uh, is a mess, God can still work. He did here. That's a reminder for my faith. Maybe it's a reminder for your faith too. Fourth reflection. Last one. The Lord spoke to Isaiah and had Isaiah preach this to the people of Israel. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. Abraham and Sarah continued to be and continued to be a light shining For all the people who have, whoever will, seek God and want to live for him. A beacon of faith. And if you are walking by faith in any serious, committed way, you come from Abraham and Sarah. We are chips off the block. They are the boulder. We are the rocks. We are the pebbles. Isaiah originally said this to a people in exile who were barren, who had lost a great deal. But he goes on to say, the Lord is going to comfort you. He's going to have compassion on you. And the exiles were to remember that the Lord brings blessing in the most unlikely circumstances. Remember Abraham and Sarah and what God did with them. It looked hopeless for them, but Isaac was born. Because with God, it's never hopeless. And so if you're a little weary on your journey of faith, need a little inspiration, walking by faith, wondering what it is God has for you and if it's ever going to come. Look to Abraham and Sarah. They waited. They trusted. They wondered. But Isaac finally came. That's the end of the sermon. One last thing. Uh, As... Larry graciously uh, prayed for me this morning. I do leave for Burma on Wednesday. Uh, I'll be returning there to uh, work with uh, some pastors and leaders there. I'm going to teach a three-day pastor's conference of about 300 pastors, we're thinking, and then help open the Myanmar Mission College in Rangoon and do some more teaching there. There are a number of people groups in the country of Burma, 
and there are 10 people groups that still have not been reached with the gospel. And it is the vision of a group of people there to reach them by the year 2020 with the good news of Christ. I'm going to help these pastors and leaders train as they get ready for that mission. Burma is a very severe country. It's under military rule. The government is very corrupt. In the Government International Corruption Index, they rank 170 out of 180, or a third from the top. They're very hard on their people. The Christians there face many, many struggles. Last year, in 2009, the government closed 100 churches in Rangoon alone. I'll be in Rangoon over the next nine, uh, ten days. And, uh, but Christ's body is alive there and it's moving. And if Christ is there, then there's hope, isn't there? Faith is operating. Uh, there's some teaching to prepare that has to go through a translator. There's travels to do. There's guidance that's going to be needed as I'm there. So uh, I thank you, and I hope that you will pray for me. Let's pray together. Lord, we need faith for so many things in our lives.